This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm Scarlett Fu. We are awaiting the final Fed decision of 2019. The central bank's FOMC is expected to keep its interest rate unchanged after three straight cuts this year. We await the announcement at the top of the hour, followed by Fed Chief Jay Powell's news conference in just over 30 minutes. Here with me are my co-hosts, Jason Kelly and Carol Masser. Do you think we're going to hear in a good place again? It feels like it feels like we're in a good place. We keep hearing that from everyone we talk to. Right. Yeah. And I think what's really key is what's the bar for the Fed to actually start thinking about raising rates at this Hmm. point? Because I don't think anybody expects any kind of movement today. But I think what happens down the road and how far down the road? That bar is pretty high right now. Mm -hmm. All right. Joining us is Scott Miner, Guggenheim Global CIO and Guggenheim Partners co-founder. His firm manages more than $265 billion in assets. And Jeff Rosenberg, BlackRock Systematic Fixed Income Senior portfolio manager. Jeff, what will you be listening for? Well, you know, last time we were here, I think the big story was this notion of asymmetry. And what I mean by asymmetry is this is a Fed that is very much willing to see inflation rise and will be very quick to act on any signs of inflation falling. And I think he's going to reiterate that message. It's a really important message for investors because it really underlies the importance of bonds in a portfolio Mm -hmm. because we don't need to worry about a repeat of 2018. Mm -hmm. Your question a second ago, this is going to be a very different Fed. It'll be interesting to see whether they tip the hat at all about the policy review and moving to average inflation targeting. That's a new regime, and that's a regime where a Fed is much more willing to see inflation rise. And it's not December of 28. We've been talking about this 2018, I should say, (laughs) right, where Jay Powell, you know, you saw that he said some things that really disturbed the market, Scott. Right. Well, I think he's gotten a lot better since then. Yes, uh, fair enough. uh, You know, he's, uh, he's better at communicating. But the the thing that I think is going to be very interesting is when he makes his statement, uh, I think he's going to focus a lot on the funding markets. And I I think that the the conversation today is going to be dominated about what's going on with repo. Mm -hmm. Can the Fed really fix this? And, uh, you know, a lot of technical stuff that only people like us can really enjoy. Well, did the BIS report change anyone's thinking on what happened and how the Fed addressed the issues there? Well, it, it may have changed some people's thinking. A lot of us knew how much there was in the market in terms yeah. of leverage. I, you know, I'm going to, let's make it interesting, Scott, because the, the meeting itself isn't going to be that interesting. No, know, so I'm going to disagree with you. Wait, wait, don't play it down. Don't play it down. Uh, but I think, I think Powell doesn't want to make this about the repo market. He wants to separate monetary policy from the technical aspects of liquidity in the repo markets. And the more he addresses the repo markets in a monetary policy press conference, the more he conflates the two issues. I agree with you. People are going to want to ask the issue because it's an important issue. But I think he's going to want to try to clearly make that separation. Well, you may be right. I mean, he may just want to avoid it altogether. But, you know, history shows us that that might not be the best approach. And so I'm not sure if the speechwriters have uh, maybe prepped him with something yeah. because uh, it's going to come up for sure. Either way, he'll probably make the point and stress the point that it's not QE. Let's check in with Mike McKee at the Federal Reserve. Mike? As boring as forecast, no change in rates today. 
And the dot plot shows the consensus is no need for a rate move next year either as they stay on hold through the 2020 election. Nobody is calling for a rate cut next year, and only four of 17 see the need for any rate increase. Nobody dissented today either, the first unanimous decision since May. Notoriously unreliable this far out, but the consensus dot suggests one 25 basis point move in 2021 and another in 2022. The long-run neutral rate, though, remains at 2.5%. As for today's decision to leave rates in the range of 1.5% to 1.75%, the statement says the committee judges that the current stance of monetary policy is appropriate to support sustained expansion of economic activity, strong labor market conditions, and inflation near the committee's symmetric 2% objective. The statement drops the observation that uncertainties about the outlook remain. Instead, it says they will, quote, continue to monitor the implications of incoming information for the economic outlook, including global developments and muted inflation pressures as it assesses the appropriate path of the target range for the federal funds rate. The economic outlook? Word for word, the same as September, except that business fixed investment and exports, which had weakened last time, remain weak in this statement. The policymakers' economic projections also change very little, except for unemployment. They now see a 3.5% jobless rate by the end of next year. That's two-tenths lower than they saw in September. 3.6% in 2021, 3.7% in 2022, both also down two-tenths. The long-run Nehru rate now 4.1%, a tenth lower than forecast three months ago. The growth and inflation forecasts unchanged. 2% GDP in 2020, slowing to 1.9% in 2021, 1.8% in 2022, while PCE headline and core inflation, 1.9% next year, 2% from then on. And I know you guys were talking about this. Finally, no change in balance sheet direction. T-bill purchases into at least the second quarter of next year and overnight repos and term repos at least through January. All right, Mike McKee at the Federal Reserve, as boring as, it, as was expected, and you're kind of seeing that when you look at the market reaction. Uh, the 30-year yield staying down, as you can see there, uh, off by four basis points. The 10-year yield, the two-year yield, not really straying that much either. They're both lower as well, indicating a rise in prices. U.S. equity indexes are mixed. They were beforehand. Uh, the S&P 500 up marginally, the Dow off marginally, and dollar-yen now basically unchanged, Jason. Wow, boring. But <laughs> well, we're going to make it exciting. You are listening and watching The Fed Decides here on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser and Scarlett Foo, still with us to break it down. Guggenheim's Scott Minard and BlackRock's Jeff Rosenberg. Jeff, let me start with you. Boring, but boring's okay? Well, boring in the sense that it's market expectations. Yes. Right. There's a lot of information in there. There's tremendous amounts of information, but it's all pretty much as expected. I'll focus on the dot plot because mm -hmm. that often moves the market. Not going to move the market here. Pretty much as consensus expected. One hike in 21, another hike in 22, but nothing in 2020. And the longer run dot, no change. There was some possibility there'd be a change there that might have moved the back end. They didn't do it here. So boring in the sense that that's pretty much as expected. But what is that telling you? It's telling you this is a Fed that is on pause for a long time. It's a different regime for Fed policymaking. And even if they do 
start raising rates, they're barely raising rates. This is a far cry from normalization yeah. from years ago. And for those on radio um, and, of course, on TV, we're showing uh, dots go on the Bloomberg terminal. So taking a look at the dot plot, and I should point out that 13 of 17 officials expect no change in borrowing costs for 2020. So it seems like all in in terms of what we get. Scott, though, I do want to ask, coming off of that, 2020, do you feel like we have enough visibility at this point, especially it's an election year, right. and there are still some major issues out there? No, Carol, I don't think we have good visibility at all. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you look at what history has told us, mm -hmm. that uh, about nine months after the last rate cut, uh, the Fed is back in the mode of uh, raising rates when we're in one of these mid-cycle slowdowns. So if it truly is a mid-cycle slowdown, I mean, I would anticipate we should probably see an acceleration of growth in the second half of next year and that the Fed would try to respond to it. You know, another thing, though, that was really subtle uh, that uh, was interesting here is they left, they state the neutral rate is at two and a quarter. But they said that the, the short-term rate was appropriate, right. which means, in their mind, policy must be stimulative. Um, it, it's not neutral. So, you know, stimulative policy should spill over into the real economy. And, uh, you know, when I, I, when I made these kinds of observations during the financial crisis, uh, people never believed that we would get the turnaround by the third quarter of uh, 2009. And uh, so... You know, I think by the time we get to the third quarter of next year, things could look a lot Ten different. Ten or 11 years in, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, things have changed a lot, of course, since uh, 24 and 12 months ago, especially. Mike McKee, still at the Federal Reserve there. How much did the November jobs report, the blockbuster <clears throat> jobs report, really help Powell in avoiding having to take any action this time around and having to tilt dovish or hawkish in the near term? That would be an interesting question to ask the members of the committee because, uh, obviously, it validated the stance of policy right now. Now, uh, we also know, if you look at the graph of non-farm payrolls, that months where we have a really outsized gain, unexpected gain, the next month is kind of a makeup, and you have a lower-than-expected increase. So that could happen. They don't look at one month, however. They kind of look farther out. I did want to pick up on something that Scott said and uh, do a little advertisement for the Bloomberg here. And this will drive the people on radio crazy, but they can go home and uh, sign into the Bloomberg and look at Dots Go because they've changed it a little bit now. And there's a bar across the top where it says custom. And you can put in a date. You go back to 2012 and you can see what the forecasts were on the dot plot compared to where they are now. And it just shows you how completely unreliable they are. They don't have visibility and everything is going to change. But if you're trading right now, you got to trade on what they're telling you at the moment, which raises a question. And I'll pose this to Jeff, but Scott can jump in as well. The long-run neutral rate doesn't change, as we pointed out, 2.5%. But in 2022, they're still at 2.1%. Does that suggest that maybe their neutral rate is a little high? Yeah, it's, it certainly may. And it's come down in terms of, you also saw it in terms of the Nehru coming down as well in the forecasts. And so this is a Fed that is tilting towards accommodation because of both the risks to the outlook, but also the point I made at the beginning, the asymmetry with respect to the outlook for inflation. And, and, and that'll be interesting for me, I think, in the press conference. Does he tee up this change in the policy reaction function that says we're willing to be late, we're willing to be operating different? This is no longer a preemptive Fed. This is a Fed that is trying to uh, generate inflationary 
uh, pressures. And that's partly what you see, I think, in those in that path of those dots. Right. But I also think it reflects that the Fed is groping in the dark here. Right. Nehru, why we're, we're not getting wage acceleration, really, or, or inflation here. So, you know, why why is Nehru above four percent? Um, you know, I can, I'm old enough to remember when people thought Nehru was 3%. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, the, this whole thing with the neutral rate. I mean, some of the members uh, of the committee actually believe the real neutral rate is negative. So, you know, maybe the neutral rate isn't two and a half or two and a quarter. Maybe it's closer to one and a half. And so, and, and that's the kind of debate I think they're having internally. And they're, they're just groping in the dark to figure out what to do at this point because they're in unexplored territory. Well, Scott, speaking to that debate, um, I'm just looking at our, our Steve Matthews. We're looking at the Fed blog, the live blog that's going on. It says, while most of the committees do expect higher rates in 2021, there's a large dispersion of where committee participants expect rates to go. All in all, this is a dovish message. I mean, there is a lot of still questions out there. I do wonder among the big macro stories that are out there, whether it's trade, whether it's the elections, some other issues, what are the ones that you're watching, um, Jeff, that you think could maybe change and really impact the Fed come 2020? Well, this, this, this is a world in which everything is upside down. The Fed and markets don't focus on the outcome for what it means for financial markets, but the other way around. The Fed focuses on financial markets for what it means for their activities, meaning financial conditions mm -hmm. is in the driver's seat. And so what will move the Fed and the dot plot and Fed policy is what happens to financial conditions. And so the number one consideration today is trade policy and the trade fight that we're having, the trade war that we're having and how that resolves. Markets have jumped to a conclusion. No tariffs imposed on December 15th, smooth sailing, everything's going to be fine. So you're vulnerable if it isn't, and the vulnerability in financial markets means there's a spike in volatility, and that's what drove the Fed back into the markets to move from hiking to cutting. That's what would move the Fed, I think, most likely uh, in this environment. Mike McKee down in Washington, I want to ask you what you make of the Fed's stance on the repo market, especially given that is a story that has dominated Bloomberg headlines over the past couple of months. We've spent a lot of time talking about it on our show. I know Scarlett has as well. I, I know you have. Where are we on that question? Well, the statement doesn't move us anywhere on that question, but I think Jeff had the point earlier that it was correct, that they want to keep that separate from monetary policy at this point. They don't want it to be seen as any form of policy making any form of QE. So uh, if there is to be any kind of announcement or any kind of change, it may come from Jay Powell in the, uh, in the press conference. But I would put it to, uh, to Jeff and uh, to Scott. Uh, you're looking at uh, right now... Uh, reports from the BIS that it wasn't a one-time confluence of random events in September, that uh, there are structural and regulatory problems out there. And then you have that, that note that went around yesterday from Zoltan Pozar of uh, Credit Suisse suggesting we could have big problems at the turn of the year. Uh, what would you like to hear Jay Powell say? What, what's needed for the markets at this point? Well, look, Mike, I think that the problem here is beyond the control of the Fed. Uh, I think they understand that macroprudential policy that was set up uh, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis has created a matrix of regulation, which we're now starting to find the limitations on. 
Um, and so, you know, regulations like uh, the GSIB, which uh, basically sets leverage ratios for the banks, uh, that gets set at the end of every year. And the banks traditionally sort of go above the ratio until December 31st, and then they shrink their balance sheet suddenly at the end of the year. That's going to cause a lot of issues coming into the end of the year, and it's issues, I think, that are beyond the control of the Fed. Um, the repo market is dominated by four banks. Mm. Um, they can't, you know, the, the transmission mechanism, if these banks aren't willing to expand their balance sheet, I'm not sure how the liquidity flows from the Fed to the markets. And uh, I think they have a, a bigger structural issue here, which is outside of their control. So we were talking with Jeff earlier about financial conditions and how that will drive the Fed in 2020. If you bring in the repo market and the funding pressures we've seen and the fact that it will kind of continue to be an irritant, could the repo market squeeze end up infiltrating financial markets <laughs> and affecting financial conditions to the point where the Fed then has to respond to that. I, I, I know we're getting circular here. Yeah, but. sure. I, I, I don't think we're going to, the, the repo market itself, will, I think it can get really sloppy going into the end mm. of the year. Uh, I think we could have a lot of dislocation because if you can't finance this collateral, the only other option is to sell it. So we could see, you know, some, some significant sell-offs going into the end of the year and fixed income in particular. But, uh, you know, the thing that I've, you know, Jeff is talking about the uncertainty and the thing that I find interesting is this skew in uh, options pricing. Uh, you know, all the put buying that's going on uh, around next year uh, and the, the election looks a lot like what was going on back in 2016 before the election. And so, you know, history shows us that when you have this much sort of hedging occurring in the market, that once, you know, you get past the risk event, if you haven't had some major bad piece of news, it's we're likely to get a lift in, in stock prices and risk assets across the board. All right, so we could see some big moves later on. Mike McKee, I know you're about to head into the news conference that Jay Powell will be hosting in about uh, 15 minutes' time. What kind of, I mean, I know that you're not going to give us the exact question, but give us a sense of where you're really going to press him. Well, I think we want to know if there is any kind of concrete or, or clear uh, explanation of what the Fed's reaction function is now. Is it inflation that they're watching that would cause them to maybe change their, uh, their forecast, their outlook for rate moves? And obviously there are questions about the repo market. Uh, we were laughing today. Uh, we could ask about Steven Strasburg and Garrett Cole's new baseball contract. Are they going to be pushing uh, wage inflation higher? Uh, so at this point, we could ask him anything like that. Well, I, Mike, I got to say, I don't think it'll be at the Dodgers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Looking forward to those questions. All right. Our thanks to Bloomberg's Michael McKee. He'll rejoin us after Fed Chair Jay Powell's news conference. So we'll get back to Mike shortly. I do want to continue. We do want to continue with our roundtable here. So, Jeff, I do wonder about kind of though this subpar growth. I mean, do we start to see um, growth at all pick up, in your view, in terms of the U.S. economy? Well, I, you know, I think we've got to unpack what you mean by subpar growth, because this growth is actually above potential. And it's, you know, while potential one and three quarters is subpar relative to history, forget the history. The world has moved on. Demographics has changed. Productivity has changed. We're outperforming our potential. So this is actually quite good growth. Uh, and as, as Scott said, there's a case to be made that it could get that much better because we're providing accommodation, housing is turning, the labor markets are, are quite strong. So 
I think the growth picture, at least in the U.S., is good. Now, globally, there's a subpar story, and that's certainly been a big part of uh, this year's recession fears that the U.S. would import the world's subpar growth. But next year, we could flip that around, and the U.S. could export its above-par growth to the rest of the world. Uh, So I think the Fed is a little bit less concerned about the growth picture and a bit more concerned about the inflation picture. Lack thereof. Exactly. But from too little. And that gets you, again, to this asymmetry on the inflation. And that's really their problem. And it's a problem that they think they have the tools because inflation is a monetary uh, component. And they're going to be focused on how do we get inflation back up and how do we avoid deflation and really the the deflation in inflation expectations, because that's the the concern. Well, Scott, we could talk a little bit more about baseball. I would love to do that. But sort of related (laughs) to that, that let's (laughs) let's talk a little bit about the consumer and maybe the, the CEO, the typical CEO who you're talking to. How is he or she feeling as they're reading this from the Fed and looking forward to Jay Powell? Well, I think, look, I think that your typical CEO is trying, is basically putting everything on hold. Um, you know, we, we have all these questions around trade, the supply chain, and you see it in expectations for investment next year. So I think most of them are just focused on, you know, how do I milk as much productivity out of this as I can when, you know, as Jeff was talking about, you know, you are, you know, we're not seeing runaway wage pressure. But, you know, we are seeing wages grow between three and three and a half percent. And, you know, when you have uh, margin pressure, uh, I think they're going to be focusing on that more than anything. But they're not building a new factory. They're, 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 we're not talking about huge expansion for a lot of CEOs, right? No. And I think that, uh, you know, this is one of the, the uh, unintended consequences of the trade policy, is that the advantages that were offered in the Tax Act uh, of immediate expenses of capital expenditure, all these things that you think we'd be out there just going to town on, uh, the uncertainty... Uh, around uh, you know the 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 supply chain, uh, you know where where in the world do you invest? Uh, is got uh, people you know basically biding their time, waiting for a better opportunity. Three rate cuts don't make the CEOs feel any better about wanting to to put their money to work. You know it's interesting when I talk to people about the economy, I I get a a fair amount of pessimism. Um, you know, it, it, people. Who are you keep, talking to? Well, well Carol. Well, <laughs> well, but, but here's the thing. Okay, well, here's the deal. You talk to a lot of people, and it doesn't feel so good. And you do have folks who are running companies that are hesitant. And I think about three months ago, August, we were talking constantly about recession. There were there was a lot of nervousness, and here we are today. Like things swing back. So where are we fundamentally? Well, fundamentally, I think we're in a good place. I mean, you know, again... That was a little defensive, sorry. As Jeff commented, I mean, you know, we we have solid job growth. We have wage growth. Uh, You know, the consumer is really pulling this thing along. If you want to get near term, you know, the, the correlation between stock prices and Christmas sales is very strong. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got year-over-year sales maybe in the neighborhood of 5% or more, which is a big piece of consumption. So, you know, uh, you know, the things look pretty good. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, as we go into the next year, we now have the ECB back in the mode of expanding its yeah. balance sheet. we got the Fed expanding its right. balance sheet. I know it's not quantitative easing, but I do think it's large-scale asset purchases. Um, and, 
I know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the other thing is that uh, the Germans are finally coming around and who, you know, everybody's complained in Europe that they haven't taken lead with fiscal stimulus. Now Merkel is being forced into that mode and, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, some stimulus out of, you know, Europe. So, you know, things... You know, but why then are so many people putting on more put positions? Why are, you know, there's more stories about planning for risk in 2020. So why are we well, getting that? Let's not conflate financial markets and economies. Those two can be dis... So the financial markets have it wrong? Not that they have it wrong, but when financial market valuations are at as high as they are, when people's portfolios are exposed, and then you have an uncertainty that is unmeasurable, like trade uncertainty, it, it, it implores you to add some protection, even if it has nothing to do with your macro, the fundamental macroeconomic outlook can be Just great. And the fundamental macroeconomic outlook can be lagged to the financial markets mm. rather than the other way around. It's financial market outcomes, that was my point earlier about financial conditions, sure. right. that lead economies rather than the other way around. And so our focus on the economy can be wrong if we're trying to manage portfolios. There we have to focus on risk, positions, exogenous factors to the economy like trade, trade uncertainty or other uh, factors. And that's, I think, where you can get the put option buying. This is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm Scarlett Food, joined by my co-hosts, Cal Masser and Jason Kelly. And with, of, with us, of course, as always, Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock and Scott Minard of Guggenheim. I want to bring up uh, a chart on recession because Cal brought up how in August we were talking about recession. The fears were all around us. And for those of you on radio, what we've seen is that the odds of a recession have come down. In August, they reached almost 40 percent, according to the New York Fed and Bloomberg Economics' model. But it's come down to about... 24% for the New York Fed's model and 33% for Bloomberg Economics. Jeff, when you think about the prospect of a recession, what do you look at to get a read on that likelihood? Is it the, the yield curve? I mean, the New York Fed's model is based on the yield curve. Is it that or is it something else? Well, that's what I was going to say. Is like the, these recession probability models, are the levels that you get out of them are highly dependent on, one, do you, do you put in the yield curve? And two, what's the coefficient that you use mm. on the yield curve? And, and answer your question, you don't want to use the yield curve, or you can't use the quantity of the yield curve in the same way. The yield curve direction is telling you the right message, but the size of it is not applicable because we've changed the nature of the yield curve mm -hmm. with global QE and negative interest rates. And so that's distorted that measure, and it's probably led to an overstatement in the degree of recession probability. The direction is correct. I mean, best recession probability indicator is overheating from a job market that's overheating, right. and that's the unemployment rate. But the lags from the trough in the unemployment rate to the subsequent recession can be quite long. And it's not necessarily the case that you get that recession probability in the next three or six months, the way that these models are saying. All right. So, Scott, final thought before we hear from Jay Powell in just a few minutes. What are you expecting to hear from this very well-behaved Fed chair? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, exactly. Stick it's, to the a, script. it's always a, it's an exciting moment to hear him speak. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I think Mike is right. Uh, I, I, it will be interesting to see whether he gives us some clues about the asymmetry question. Yeah. That is clearly, from the last meeting, they made it clear that if they needed to cut rates again, they were going to do that. Um, I'm not sure they're gonna, they don't wanna take the punch bowl away, uh, but I'm not so sure they wanna to emphasize that as much as the past. 
And, uh, you know, also I think it will be interesting to see whether he addresses the job report and, and the signs that things seem to be stabilizing and improving. Jeff, what do you think? What do you want to hear from him? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this asymmetry question, I think, you know, whether he answers it more specifically around moving towards average inflation targeting, what their concerns are around falling inflation expectations as a driver of that shift. Mm -hmm. um, I think those will be some of the, the, the key, some of the key issues. And whether or not, how much they address some of these near-term drivers to their decisions, whether it's trade or the jobs market. That would be interesting. I, it would be interesting as well. Uh, you know, there's this gap, uh, you know, with the tale of two Phillips curves. You've got wage inflation that is accelerating, uh, but it is not showing up in broad-based inflation. And it's mm. part of that inflation narrative that says we're worried about this lack of inflation, yet we see inflation in jobs markets. Will that tip over? What are we looking at? What are we concerned about there? All right, Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock and Guggenheim's Scott Miner. They will be rejoining us after Jay Powell's news conference. We have about five and a half minutes to go before Jay Powell begins speaking. This is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Radio. If you thought someone was missing from our coverage this afternoon, you are correct. It is Tom Keene, and he's actually in London because we decided to move him to where the excitement is, Tom. And it's not in New York and Washington because the Fed will pretty much do as is expected, but it is in London where we don't know what's going to happen with the election tomorrow. The polls uh, show some tightening here between labor and conservative, don't they? It's really, really interesting. I watch very carefully the newscast at 6 p.m. here in London. And there's a couple messages, Scarlett. Really, some of it goes to the slow economic growth that Scott, Jeff, and Michael have been talking about. What's fascinating here is, one, how everyone is worn out by the Brexit debate and they are absolutely frustrated by the divisions in the country within a parliamentary system. We have to remember, Scarlett, tomorrow there will not be a vote for one prime minister, one election, even five elections. There's really 600-plus different elections that will coalesce around Prime Minister Johnson or Mr. Corbyn or maybe one of the so-called variations of hung parliament we can get. What's Interesting to bring it over to the Fed meeting today is all of this comes from subpar growth and from the subpar employment and the underemployment that we see both in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Carol is doing a little cheer here I, as you mentioned the word subpar. I believe Tom said that both of you talked about subpar growth. Well, I, I think we have to distinguish between the, the, the growth coming in subpar as a function of p low potential growth okay. and what we're actually seeing in terms of growth. I think when you say subprime, when Tom's talking about subprime, it's that our growth levels are lower. And that's a function of what Tom's talking about, elections, fiscal policy, political systems and choices on how we construct the economy, incentives, mm -hmm. uh, the role of government. All of those things change potential growth. And potential growth is lower. And that's what that vote is about in Brexit and is what our vote is going to be about next year as well. In terms of the elections. Tom, you want to come back in? Yeah, I do. With Jeffrey Rosenberg. Jeffrey, some huge losses this week. The death of Paul Volcker and, of course, the huge death of Marvin Goodfriend at a way too young age. You studied at Carnegie Mellon under the Meltzer School, the Freshwater School. And so much of their theme is that we would run out of ammunition if we were too accommodative. Does this fed into the dot plot that we showed earlier, and I say good afternoon to Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, does this fed risk running out of the ammunition to assist the country? I think the good news is that the fed uh, has more ammunition. I think 
Tom, you're over in, in the U.K. It's closer to Europe where that's a much more pressing story and they are closer to, if not already, run, ran out of uh, ammunition. Our Fed is not. Uh, it has that potential, but there's enough steepness in the curve. There's enough forward guidance. There's enough potential LSAP expansion, QE expansion, where there's more ammunition for the Fed. But the longer you use it and the longer your policies and the lack of fiscal policy to help your monetary policy, which has very much been the case in Europe, uh, as long as that exists, it pushes the pressure for monetary policy to do more longer and longer, and that exhausts the ammunition. And that's what you've seen in Europe. Scott, what do you think? Um, I, Tom is in London. I, I want to fold the, the BOE back in here because there's talk, of course, that if something does happen, if there is a shock, the BOE will need to act. Does it matter at this point? Well, I think, look, uh, it does matter that they do respond. They don't just sit on their hands. But, you know, to come back to uh, what Jeff was saying and the question from Tom is central banks are there to help smooth out business cycles, mm -hmm. right? They're not there to solve structural problems. And the, the issues they're facing in Europe, the issues we're facing in Japan, and the issues we're facing in the United States are all structural. We're running out of workers. You know, you can talk about regulation, you can talk about productivity, but the, the reality is, is that if we don't have the factor inputs to grow the economy, the economy just slows down. And I think that, that that's, turns into a political issue, but there's no magic wand or easy fix. We're going to have to face the real problems. All right, final thought from you, Mr. Keene, over in London. You've got a lot on your plate still this week. Well, I think it'll be very eventful, certainly for the Fed into 2020. There's no question, Jason, it will be eventful for the United Kingdom. What am I watching for tomorrow? Of course, we can't talk about it tomorrow. They have very strict polling rules. But in our special coverage tomorrow night at 5 p.m. New York time and 10 p.m. London time, all of that will be wrapped around this tactical voting, the idea of choosing, even if I don't want to vote for candidate B, I'll vote for candidate C because it'll do something with candidate A, completely different than what we see in the United States. Tom Keane joining us from London. Thank you for making a special guest appearance there. Tom, of course, is in London to cover the U.K. elections. It'll be interesting to hear what he discusses tomorrow on Bloomberg Surveillance since they can't talk about right. the U.K. elections. I think they're going to talk about the Fed, and they're going to talk about Jay Powell. And this is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm Scarlett Fu alongside Jason Kelly and Carol Masser. The highlights from the Federal Reserve Chairman's news conference, he was a fairly dovish uh, tone here. He made clear that the Fed will not raise rates until inflation is at 2% or higher. And in fact, he said some participants penciled in inflation overshoots in their outlooks as well. And in response to Michael McKee's question, he indicated that there is flexibility on plans uh, to widen, expand the balance sheet, including perhaps coupon purchases. He mentioned as well that in hindsight, the Fed rate hikes uh, that were taken, including last December's, were not a mistake. Uh, he said uh, in terms of an update on the Fed's monetary policy framework review, it will take until mid-2020, and uh, the idea that nothing is going to change is not correct. In terms of market impact, uh, investors seem to like what they heard from Jay Powell, bonds extending their rally, the 10-year yield and the two-year yield falling, stocks turning decisively higher, the U.S. dollar sinking, you can see there, weakening versus the yen at 108.52, crude oil extending, or I should say pairing its decline, it had fallen as much as 1.9% on an inventory build, and gold extending its gain.
All right, so let's get a little bit more analysis. Let's bring in Diane Swank. She's Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. She's joining us from Chicago. Still with us is Scott Minard, Guggenheim Global CIO and Guggenheim Partners co-founder. His firm, by the way, manages over $265 billion in assets. And also still with us, Jeff Rosenberg, BlackRock, Systematic Fixed Income Senior Portfolio Manager. But I do want to start with you, Diane, because as Scarlett just mentioned, overwhelmingly we're seeing kind of feedback on this Fed day as being a dovish one. But your notes, you say that the statement of forecasts were slightly more hawkish than one would expect. What stood out for you? Well, I think there's a real disconnect between Powell as the dove and much more dovish than many of his regional counterparts at the Federal Reserve Banks and what what the statement is and what the forecasts are. So what we see is a forecast where inflation stays below target, yet they don't have rates being cut in 2020. That doesn't make sense. It should be actually having rates being cut. I was surprised that he said all of the rate hikes in 2018 were not a mistake. I think you could maybe argue the first three rate hikes were justified given the data we had at the time, but the fourth rate hike in December was a mistake. So, you know, there was a little bit of a pushback there from the Fed in terms of what we've seen before, more of the humble pie that they're eating and sort of eating crow a bit much of this year. That was sort of being backed off a bit at this um, with the statement and the forecast that we saw. All right, so Scott, little humble pie, little crow being eaten there uh, by JPL. Do you agree with that? What was the tone that you took away? Well, I, I took away a couple of things. I think the piece of information that we got that was important that we didn't know, because most of it is a rehashing of things that we did know, was this small little off comment that he made about what you didn't see in the forecast that were written down. Uh, around inflation. And he said something like a number wrote down overshoots on inflation as appropriate. And that's important because overshooting on inflation is the new framework review about average inflation targeting. And I think they're setting up some of that. There was a lot of discussion on inflation, a lot of questions uh, about the lack of inflation. And I think he's setting us up for next year and trying to build that sense of credibility and talking about how the Fed builds credibility, not just in terms of saying we want to target inflation, but you need to back it up with, with policy actions. Mike McKee now joining us. Uh, of course, he stepped out of the news conference after it concluded. Mike, uh, you asked some questions, very good questions, on the BIS report and the repo market. And the Fed chair gave indication that there's some flexibility here when it comes to expanding the balance sheet. It's a stark contrast to what we heard last year when he uh, made the comment about the balance sheet expansion being on, uh, winding down, being on autopilot. Yeah, in a couple of different ways, he acknowledged it has been quite a year for the Fed because, of course, at this time last year, the Fed was also raising interest rates and suggesting they were prepared to continue doing it. And uh, he ate a little humble pie there, suggesting maybe uh, they have learned something about uh, visibility and forecasting. But in terms of the repo rate, uh, they think what they have in place at the moment, uh, the term repo and the overnight repo facility and the sizes of uh, the auctions that they're presenting are going to be enough to get through year end. But he said, we are looking at regulatory changes. We are looking at the possibility of buying coupons instead of T-bills. And if we see that it's necessary, we'll do that. Now, some of the things he talked about, obviously, deep in the weeds uh, of the plumbing, like uh, different banks having uh, different characteristics on their balance sheets, that sort of thing. But it does show that the Fed is uh, paying attention to what's going on, even if they are not in the same place as some analysts who think uh, trouble is coming. I got to say, Scott, I was watching you as Mike asked that question. And as Jay Powell said, these are very important operational matters, but unlikely to have mm -hmm. any macroeconomic implications. Yeah, right. 
You, you had a little bit of a <laughs> well, I, I reaction. Well, really, I did find it interesting that uh, you know, he, he left the door open subtly that maybe things at the end of the year could get a little bit rough, right? Uh, the other thing which was interesting was sort of like, you know, nothing to see here. You can just drive by, right? We got uh, it. Yeah, we got it. You know, nothing to worry about. But, um, you know, look, we're, we'll find out. But, uh, again, I think uh, it would be good to have some cash on hand at the end of the year. Do you buy that idea that there's no macroeconomic implications? Well, I think that, that the Fed will work with the regulators to fix the problem before uh -huh. it turns into a macro. The one thing about the difference today but and 2008, policymakers were slow to react, and now they're on a hair trigger, yeah. and, and they just don't want to let this get out of control. He also said that uh, it, it's not the Fed's job to eliminate all volatility. So you could have some volatility around year end. It, it, it won't necessarily be macroeconomic changing, game changing volatility, but you might have some volatility. Well, and Diane Swan, come on back in here from Chicago. It's also interesting to sort of see maybe a moment where the <laughs> Fed steps a little bit out of this very harsh spotlight. It feels like it's been in for this entire year, and certainly what a difference from a year ago, as you alluded to. What does that mean for investors maybe in the short and midterm, if the Fed is not as big of a concern? Well, I think they, they really do want to be on the sidelines. They don't want to be part of election year politics. That said, I think some of the points that Jeff made earlier about the Fed wanting an overshoot on inflation, they're really setting the stage, even though it's not in their dot plots that, you know, Chairman Powell is pretty clear to say don't look too much at those because they're out of context. But the idea is that he is more dovish than what we were seeing out there. And I think the idea that there's more slack in the labor market and we, he'd really need to see wages with a little heat in them to really feel like the labor market was hot. Those are suggesting that the Fed actually has a much lower threshold to cut rates than raise rates. And I think we still will see an additional rate cut, at least one next year, if not more than that. And that's something that the Fed doesn't want to say up front. But I think the Fed, I think Chairman Powell is more than ready to do. And he's been able to get the votes even when it was tight. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about. So you expect potentially one more rate cut in 2020. Is recession at all on your radar, Diane? Well, it's still on my radar because we still don't know exactly what's going to happen and how long um, we'll hit the pause button on trade. If we can hit the pause button on trade and roll back some of these tariffs, we can certainly do well and continue through 2020 without a recession. If we were to see some kind of a reaction function in a few months where all of a sudden the delay in tariffs were taken back and we were seeing an escalation in trade again with China, that would change the equation and up the ante on risks and trade on interests of a recession again. I think that is where we're at. The good news is we seem to be de-escalating at the moment, and that gets us a little wiggle room. But as Chairman Powell was very careful to point out, even with the USMCA getting passed, it doesn't raise lift the veil of uncertainty yet with China. And even then, you know, we still have uncertainty if we keep the tariffs in place that we have in place. There still is uncertainty about what trade policy will be post-election 2020 year. We're all highly attuned to the to facial reactions that you guys have. <laughs> Scott, you raised your eyebrows when Diane talked about a possible rate cut in 2020. Well, you know, I really appreciate it when people disagree with me. Uh, because, I mean, seriously, you know, Diane's a, a great economist. And, uh, you know, I like people that can, can give me something to think about. Because, you know, look, you know, I actually invest money, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, my clients pay me to have an opinion. And so I have to have an opinion. And, uh, you know, and so the one thing I always find about having an opinion is the only thing that can happen is it could go wrong, right? So you want to hear somebody else give you a really strong argument. 
And, uh, you know, while I, I don't agree with Diane, I think that I, I have a lot of confidence that President Trump wants to get reelected and uh, he will probably tone things down. Uh, and, you know, look, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, on Sunday, you know, we see a tweet about, you know, he's really good friends with Xi and President Xi and that President Xi is making lots of headway and, you know, we're, mm. we're buddies and we're going to get together and have a deal. Things are looking good for things him. happen in election years, right? I, oh, that, yeah. That is, that is the assumption, by the way. But uh, I agree with you on that assumption. That said, there's a lot that can go wrong with China in, um, in the next 12 months. Well, I think, Diana, that the, the issue with, you know, China going bad in the next 12 months, we, you know, that's about how long it is till the election. And I think that he doesn't want to risk that in the face of the election. I do agree with you. There's a lot here that can go badly. Uh, but, um, you know, I, as I say, I'm, I've got to have an opinion. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go with Donald Trump wants to be president again. So. All right. Mike McKee, jump in here. I know you have a question. Well, it kind of follows from all of that. I guess I'll pose it to, uh, to Scott or Doug. Uh, given the events of the past year, given the fact that a year ago uh, Jay Powell kind of stepped in it at this press conference by suggesting that uh, we were going to face the status quo, uh, can you really <clears throat> come up with a long-term horizon trade based on the Fed, given uh, how they've shown they don't seem to have a lot of visibility either? Well, you know, one thing, uh, Mike, that I always like to reinforce with people is I think we all need to have more confidence in the willingness and ability of our government to print money. And so uh, the, the thing that I know I can fall back on is the comment I made earlier uh, to Scarlett, uh, which is the Fed is on a hair trigger. And we, we see that, uh, you know, the, that the first sign of turbulence in December they were willing to go on hold and reconsider everything. And, and if you look at the stock market, the minute they went on hold and Williams went out and did the mop-up exercise after that meeting, stocks came roaring back. So, you know, it's not 100% clear that we had to have all this, but at the end of the day, things weren't doing so bad before we stopped or we started cutting rates. But clearly, they want an insurance policy that this thing's going to stay on track. Jeff, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, look, I think Diane and Scott are laying out these, these kind of two sides of the argument. But the core of that argument rests on, you know, can you get in the mind of the president and his decision? Can anyone? Do you, do you, you, do you feel lucky? It's above my pay grade. You know, there's a lot of shots. I'm not sure how many bullets are left in that round. Uh, so it, that's that's the part. It's not risk. It, it's 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 uncertainty and you can't measure it and you know you can take both sides I think you know, I think what's clear is that this is the issue and mm -hmm. Sunday may give us a little bit of a, of a kick the can uh, down the road um, but you know you got to have an opinion it's just what do you base the opinion on and I find it hard to want to put a lot of, of my uh, investors money riding on a, an assessment of, of somebody I have no idea how to how to judge yeah but you know it's like the old rush song you know, you can choose not to decide. You still have made a choice. So if you, right. if you don't, you know, uh, if you like don't take yeah, the risk. Uh, anybody who quotes Rush, man, I'm just going to say. <laughs> Diane, come on, Diane, come on back in uh, on this. Diane, what are your thoughts here in terms of the election and the impact? <laughs> Above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, talk about... Uh, I can't imagine a scenario where this election year adds certainty rather than uncertainty 
um, even if we hit the pause button on trade. So that still is out there, and I think that's something that we have to deal with. That doesn't mean the economy falls apart. What does matter is if there is, as much as the Fed is on a hair trigger, they don't have a lot of triggers left to pull. And on the flip side of it, we also know that in the speed of a tweet, policy can change on trade. And that's a hair trigger as well. And that's something, as I said, above my pay grade to <laughs> forecast. I know Scott has to have an opinion. Jeff has to have an opinion. I appreciate that this is such an um, amazingly uh, kind disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> Diversity that, of thought. It's that's good. how we do it here. Well, now seems as and good respectful. time. I appreciate yeah. it. And, yeah. and it's worth it to challenge all of us. Absolutely. We all want to be challenged. Absolutely. Well, it's worth bringing in as well the idea of um, political pressure from the top and someone who's handled it well in the past. Of course, this week we saw the passing of a giant in the finance world and in the world of central banking. Uh, Paul Volcker, of course, passing away at the age of 92. There is a recent Bloomberg opinion piece written by the former BOE Governor Irvin King. He says Volcker established his reputation at the Fed as an inflation flight fighter between 79 and 83 when short-term rates rose to more than 20 percent and double-digit inflation was conquered a long time ago. That episode did more than anything to convince people of the need for the Fed's independence and it proved how vital it is for central bank heads in particular to resist political pressure often from the very top. Now clearly we don't know uh, what the president's going to do but we know that he will likely say something. But I do want to get everyone's thoughts on the legacy of Paul Volcker and whether um, as one reporter asked Jay Powell, he casts a long shadow over the Fed in terms of how they think about fighting inflation and the scourge of inflation. Well, you know, I think he did. Um, and, and the reason I say that is for 30 years, we were, we were concerned about preemptive tightening mm -hmm. to stop inflation. Yep. And, and I think what we just lived through last year was this sort of, you know, ingrained legacy of we got to get ahead of inflation before it takes off. Uh, I think what policymakers have discovered is that deflation can just be as threatening as inflation. Mm -hmm. And maybe, uh, you know, Volcker's leaning against inflation was appropriate for the time, yeah. but we, we've moved beyond that. Jeff, uh, Scott a few minutes ago mentioned printing money. And of course, we live in an era, we were just speaking earlier this week with Stephanie Kelton mm -hmm. about modern monetary theory. I mean, Paul Volcker had some thoughts on that, to, to say the least. But this feels like a different era in a lot of ways. What well, do you make it, of it? It, it, it absolutely is a different era because that was an era of inflation, <clears throat> de-anchored inflation expectations, and where the policy challenge of the day was to rein those inflation and inflation expectations in. Today it's different, and that's why we're talking about printing money and modern monetary theory, because we're challenged on too little inflation. And so it is a very different era. Uh, and folks of an inflation-fighting era might look at what we're talking about today with shock, yeah. but some of them, including Volcker, could recognize that the challenges were different and so the prescriptions uh, for solving them are different. So, Diane, in terms of the prescriptions that we need, inflation versus deflation, it sounds like you'd be a little bit more concerned about deflation at this point. Well, I think, you know, the, the Fed is still, I mean, Fed, you know, Paul went on at length of what he would require to see a hot labor market. You know, wages, really, heat. we need some heat out there. Mm. We still don't have the heat. And, you know, what's interesting, too, about the labor market is as good as things are, the labor market for new college grads and college grads in general is still worse than it was in the late 1990s. 
That's another little caveat that we keep missing. We've got more underemployment than we once did. So even though wages are accelerating at the entry level, we're still not seeing that move up into the higher level, the management levels. We've talked about that a lot in the past. I also would add one little caveat on a legacy of Paul Volcker. He pushed hard against the deregulations that we saw in the 1980s, and that's one of the reasons he had to resign from his position, because he got out overruled on regulation by his other Fed governors um, in 1987. I think it's important to think he also was one that was warning about the concerns of what his legacy is, his long expansions, which also come with complacency. Hmm. And he's worried about how far we could get stoked financial bubbles today. Well, that's a great way to end the conversation. Our thanks to Diane Swank of Grant Thornton, Guggenheim's Scott Minard, BlackRock's Jeff Rosenberg, and of course, Bloomberg's Michael McKee down there in Washington. Well, you're listening and watching The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser and Scarlett Fu. Let's listen to some of the highlights from Fed Chairman Jay Powell's news conference. With our decisions through the course of the past year, we believe that monetary policy is well positioned to serve the American people by supporting continued economic growth, a strong job market, and inflation near our symmetric 2% goal. While low and stable inflation is certainly a good thing, inflation that runs persistently below our objective can lead to an unhealthy dynamic in which longer-term inflation expectations drift down, pulling actual inflation even lower. In order to move rates up, I would want to see inflation that's persistent uh, and that's significant, a significant move up in inflation that's also persistent uh, before raising rates to, to address uh, inflation concerns. That's my view. Looking ahead, we will be monitoring the effects of our recent policy actions along with other information bearing on the outlook as we assess the appropriate path of the target range for the federal funds rate. Of course, if developments emerge that cause a material reassessment of our outlook, we would respond accordingly. Policy is not on a preset course. All right, well, here with us in New York City to wrap up today's decision, Carl Riccadonna, Bloomberg Economics Chief U.S. Economist, and Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. All right, gentlemen, you've had some time to just synthesize it, analyze it all. Carl, kick it off with you. What did you hear from Jay Powell? This is a Fed that's increasingly in, uh, confident that uh, three cuts was the uh, magic number. Uh, they're going to sit back. The hurdles are high for additional action, even though the dot plot shows that the next move will be a rate hike. Uh, in fact, at the uh, current time, uh, the, the hurdle for a hike is actually higher than uh, additional easing. So uh, the Fed uh, today told us uh, we'll see you on Inauguration Day. Does it change any of your thinking about what happens in terms of rate moves or the economy, the economic outlook? Uh, this is a Fed that's on hold, and I think that uh, probably, uh, not, not so much that today changed my thinking, but the resilience we've seen in the labor market over the last uh, couple of months uh, tells me that uh, we will be able to execute a soft landing here. Consumers do have the, the, the spending power to carry us through uh, until uh, conditions uh, hopefully uh, improve in 2020. But... Uh, if the trade uh, talks go uh, poorly over the next couple of yeah. days, then all bets are off. Ira, what about you? I know you were listening carefully to all the comments about the repo market. Yeah, yeah 100%. Uh, you know, the, the repo stuff I thought was really interesting, in particular that Jay Powell said that they might tweak regulations and rules mm -hmm. for banks in order to uh, quell some of the things like interday liquidity and maybe make repo a little bit less balance sheet intensive. And I think that is something that is probably needed. It's probably not the only issue that the repo market's been having, but it's certainly a big one. And I think the fact that they acknowledged that and also moved away from the idea that they're going to use a standing repo 
depot facility, and that's going to come out anytime soon. So I think those are the two things that came out of here that were, were really new. One of the things that we discussed is when Jay Powell said in response to Mike McKee's question that they're very uh, important operational Great matters, question, by the but, way, unlike, but unlikely to have any kind of macroeconomic implications as a result. Is he right? Yeah. So or do you agree I, with that? So I do agree. I think that the only real macroeconomic implication for, uh, for any changes to these regulations and, and to the repo market is if repo rates were persistently very high, mm -hmm. because that would make funding treasuries even higher, and that would actually have the, uh, the effect of probably steepening the yield curve a little bit and making yields higher than they should be. And that's one of the reasons why the Fed needs to focus on this and needs to make sure that treasuries are well funded and the kind of the grease of, uh, around the wheel bearings is really, really lubricated. Otherwise, you can wind up with you know, a very squeaky wheel, and if you don't want it to fall off and create volatility in all the markets. All right, so Carl Riccadonna, a year ago, Jay Powell <laughs> stood up in front and sort of unwittingly, I think, unleashed a whole series of events that made for a very interesting back half of December. A very well-behaved, reading his script, Jay Powell, today. Is he reflecting well what's going on in the broader economy? I think he is, and I think he learned from that experience last year where, not that they were not aware of what was happening in the economy, but the market was already down something like 12% uh, going into that meeting, and then they tried to be economic cheerleaders, and that just came across as tone deaf, and things got worse as the quarter wore on, and then Christmas Eve was kind of the crescendo of it all. Um, this time around, uh, they're being very cautious, uh, very well choreographed, well telegraphed. Uh, everyone was clearly singing from the same uh, hymnal uh, following the uh, October meeting, so uh, today was really not a surprise in any, uh, any shape or form. Ira, oh, go ahead. No, how much of a factor is the Fed then for the next couple of weeks? Because they've made clear what their stance is. They're in wait and see, and they don't really see an impetus to do very much. Yeah, I, I think that, the you know, with the Fed on hold, and, like, you know, Carl's, Carl and his team think that the Fed's probably going to be on hold at least until we get, you know, very significant changes in the in, in the data momentum. So I think that over the next couple of weeks for the Fed, they're really going to focus on this year end. I mean, Jay Powell even said it. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow the Fed at around 3 o'clock is going to come out with a new schedule for repurchase agreement operations. Operations. And I think they're going to add one, maybe two more term operations that are going to go over year end and increase the sizes. So they've been doing these two-week operations. They roll off, two of them roll off next week. They've been about $35 billion and undersubscribed. So I think they're going to raise that to maybe 45 or $50 billion, And that way they're going to inject just enough liquidity to kind of quell these fears that I think a lot of people are talking about. I thought it was interesting what Diane Swank had to say about maybe a, uh, another interest rate cut come 2020. Is that even likelihood in well, terms of what we're seeing in the market? Well, the market the market is still pricing for the better than even odds of a cut by the end of next year, uh, but it's kind of linear. So I feel like it's the market kind of discounting uh, volatility in the economy and maybe a bad case in both trade and something going on with the election. But uh, you know, the markets the market certainly th thinks that an ease is much more likely than a hike at this point. The the election poses a, a big mm -hmm. uh, hurdle uh, for the Fed to actually tighten policy next year, uh, as does the fact that the Fed has undershot on inflation uh, something like 90% of the time, 95% of the time uh, since uh, 2009. So they're willing to let it run a little bit hot. I can't see a hike next year, but certainly if we lose momentum, if growth momentum looks like it's going to dip a little bit further, uh, the Fed could be uh, forced back into action, even though that's not what the dot plot's reflecting. Right. And the final point I'll make uh, is that uh, pick your favorite spring holiday. Uh, whatever the Fed is doing in the spring of an election year, they tend to keep doing right. that uh, through uh, the election. So if they're in slow hiking mode, they'll continue in slow hiking mode. If they're on hold, they'll stay on hold through the election. Carl, quick question for you. Last question. Trade, geopolitics, what's the biggest worry? Inflation, employment, what's the biggest worry? 
for Jay Powell at this point? Uh, for Jay Powell at this point, I think it's trade. He acknowledged that that was the big uh, unknown variable uh, for uh, this year uh, as he reflected on uh, you know, how the Fed could have maybe orchestrated policy differently. Uh, and certainly, if things seem to uh, unravel uh, in the current trade negotiations, which uh, earlier today, uh, the Wall Street Journal noted that the senior negotiators in China uh, hadn't spoken in uh, 10 days uh, with the senior negotiators in the U.S. So if trade falls apart, that could uh, certainly upend the Fed's well-intended plans. Carl Riccadonna of Bloomberg Economics and Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you both so much. We have a stock market that is in the green right now. The S&P up a quarter of 1%. Bond yields are lower. The dollar is sinking as well, or falling, I should say. And uh, President Trump has not tweeted on the Fed. That does it for our Fed special on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.